This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Want to understand differences with partners, family, friends, and colleagues? Try a compelling new perspective on personality psychology. Many common models of human personality assume that we each have a single unitary personality. Personality parts is grounded in our everyday experience of subtly different but recognizable sub-personalities or parts, which each of us express across everyday situations. We may recognize these parts through internal exchanges or conflicts, e.g., part of me wants this, part of me wants that, or through our experience of family members and others we know very well. Oh, they're being like that again. We find ourselves frequently in the grip or flow of these parts, acting out distinctly different characters on autopilot in response to people and environments. The model is grounded in a range of existing theories, uniting and expanding them from an exciting new perspective. Influences include Jungian psychological type, Jungian analyst Dr. John Beebe, TA, transactional analysis, transpersonal psychologist Professor John Rowan, modern consciousness research, and more. Building on the groundbreaking work of Dr. John Beebe from the last 30 years, it is now possible to map a predictable set of parts that are most noticeable in people of specific personality types. Personality Parts introduces a full spectrum of 64 parts, which are potential ways for each of us to develop our minds. Valeria interviews Richard Owen, MSc. He is an organizational psychologist and coach working with relationships and careers. He specializes in theories of personality, especially those based on C.G. Jung's psychological types and the work of Jungian analyst Dr. John Beebe in that area. Richard is certified in a wide range of type and trait psychometric tools and is integrating many perspectives into his personality parts approach. This is a way to explore and understand the distinct aspects of an individual that appear in different situations and interactions. Meet Richard at personalityparts.com. Here's the interview with Richard Owen. In your own words, who is Richard Owen? Well, it's easy for me to to kind of default to talking about myself from a personality perspective. Um, You know, whatever traits I... um, tend to exhibit or different mental processes that kind of come to the forefront for me. But I guess overall, I'm quite a, an introverted sort of thinker, intuitor, um, always quite intensely processing concepts and ideas. Um, 
perhaps more so than some people. But I've got all the different sides to me, you know, this, this side to me, you know, from playing with my children or relating to my partner or hang out with my friends or going out for a run or a walk or a drink. I mean, you know, there's all these different aspects, I guess, you know, to, to define myself. I guess we tend to say, you know, the things that we kind of feel most natural or tend to default to. So, and that for me would be the kind of internal, like, Kind of ideas and concepts and theory, things like that. I love the way you say that too. You're right. It's kind of, it's so, it's a challenge to define us because we respond differently to different situations, different people. It's never the same. I noticed that. So why is that? Why are we changing all the time? Is that because, you know, it has been said that life is change. That's the core of what life is. So if that's true, then we are life. As I often say, I don't have a life, I am life. <laughs> so it's constantly changing. Would you say something similar from the perspective of your own work? We are life. That's a really interesting statement. Yeah, I think, I mean, whatever we are is part of nature and part of the wider systems that exist. Um, and who we are is often taken as an abstraction. Um, you know, the qualities that typically like to personality is sort of described by traits. That's, that's the pre main predominant model in modern psychology. And they're kind of like abstract qualities, you know, that you can take out. So like you're saying, if in different moments of life, we exhibit very different behaviors or different experiences internally um you can sort of abstract these qualities from it over like, across situations across time and give a kind of average of how much we sort of exhibit them um and that's the sort of typical view sort of me as a person overall over a period of time or whatever we sort of average it out and it's amazing how our brains are somehow able to do that when we right. assess ourselves but yeah you know, but, but from moment to moment, of course, we can be incredibly different as an individual. It surprised me, too, that we can actually conceptualize and come up with this solid, fixed idea of who we are. That's really a surprise to me, that the brain does it, right, as you said, because it doesn't work that way. It seems like it's just a concept. It is. It is, in a sense. And it's part of our desire to, to be able to understand and define ourselves. Yeah, know. right. It might be trying to find meaning, sign meaning, right, Richard, to this experience called life. Maybe that's what it is, too. We are so interested in meaning. What does it mean? <laughs> to me, it's a, it's a spiritual kind of dance and play, being curious. And with that in mind, I guess I'll ask this question now. Do you have any spiritual inclinations, spiritual ideas or views of life? What's well, interesting to ask where yeah, what is spirit, spirituality? Like for me, it all comes down to psychology. Um, you know, I see sort of what, what people talk about as spirituality as essentially more like the, the internal experiential aspects of psychology. Um, you know, the, the, the things that were spirits or, or even gods in, in, in ancient times. You know, it was very, it's very kind of Carl Jung sort of way of looking at it to say that 
those things that people said were out there were essentially projections of what is inside us. Um, so, you know, that we're kind of putting contents from our own mind, unconscious, out there into the world in a kind of way to try and understand it, but without even realizing we're doing it. So for me, it's a spirituality, it's psychology, but from a very specific, more kind of experiential aspect, and, and, and especially of the sort of more intuitive and feeling aspects of our experience. Um, things that are slightly more mysterious and, and harder to grasp by their nature. Yeah, right. Intuition. Uh, that's um, an aspect of our brains. Would you say that's an aspect of the brain? Seems like everything is of the mind, right, Richard? Well, the brain, the mind, the body, you know, it's all one system. Yeah. It is thinking, but, or maybe it's not thinking. Intuition is being translated into language, into thinking. Would you say it's that got, maybe it's a feeling? So it's, yeah, it's got a sense. So within the sort of personality models that come from like Jungian ways of approaching it, intuition has a specific definition. Um, in general use, it, it kind of gets, it's a broader term that people use to, just, to kind of describe anything that sort of is slightly nebulous but comes to us, it like arises it almost and you get it you, you receive the contents and then you go ah oh, that's that's this, this that's what it is you know you kind of some part of it's that arises in a kind of almost fully formed rather than us having to labor through it slowly and systematically um but in in the sort of Jungian personality models it's intuition is is a perceiving or a perceptive function so it's always about like seeing what is there which is contrasted to the the judging uh decision making processes which kind of give a sense of uh right or wrong or good or bad or some kind of quality so the intuition is specifically perceiving function um and there's even two kinds of intuition within it there's the called the introverted and extroverted intuition the introverted intuition is it it really kind of digs into this essential quality of something it perceives something kind of implicit and abstract about the nature of what something is at its core and in, in, in a and you kind of get it it recently arrives and you, and you kind of like a click moment and the aha thing you go that's what it is you just it's like everything you ever experienced about something gets synthesized and you get this kind of core um essence or nature or quality which it has that that's kind of continuous across all your experience of it so that's the introverted intuitive experience from my from my point of view and the extroverted intuitive point of view is it's it's more of like a a kind of fantasy imaginative sort of um experience um and also very much about relating things in the present moment to each other so it's much more like about running through scenarios of what could be or what could have been in your head and, and you know almost like dreams in yeah. a sense yeah i was about to say that actually about dreams too is that a, an imaginative kind of part of us but how interesting the way you describe yeah from that perspective um introvert and extrovert intuition and 
what comes to me when I think about intuition, it seems like there's no process to it. It's not a process. I mean, for me, it's not a process, a processing thing. Or maybe it's not a thing at all. It's just this, uh, it's very subjective. Then I also tend to see the broader, larger view of life. So being able to see from the top of the mountain, per se, like in whatever situation is a challenging situation, instead of focusing on what's happening, then there is something that comes in and shows me the big picture of that, which is, it's always about love or something that kindness. I relate intuition to love and kindness for some reason, <laughs> not knowing exactly why. <laughs> well, that is the other side to, to what people often typically use the word for, yeah. is what then what is called the feeling functional processes. So exactly those two experiences, like the extroverted feeling, you know, often being described very much in terms of love, in terms of heartfelt sense of um connection or relationship or and, and more broadly into like the pro-social um kind of aspects of us as human beings you know this you know people use the, the the um the metaphor of the heart a lot and it's 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 surprisingly accurate when you when you look at what kind of science nowadays you know realizes about the heart in terms of almost being like like a separate brain in itself, like having these, having the kind of part of the nervous system that has, um, you know, a real sense of, of and some neurologists have even said that it's like a brain in itself, as is also the, the gut as well, which is, I believe, related to the introverted feeling, which is the other part. And, you know, as opposed to the extroverted feeling being more about like pro-social um, behaviors and, and, you know, activities that, that connect and, and bond and relate. But the introverted feeling is much more about that gut felt sense of um, what's right or wrong. How do we impart value? To, what do we care about? What matters right. to us? Right. Um, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, the heart's intelligence, right? Having its own brain in a way. And it really feels that way. To me, it absolutely does. So I have another question for you. Um, it might be related to this or not. What do you feel is the purpose of the human experience, if there is one or two or more? The purpose of the human experience, the, the actual, what are basically like our consciousness, like what's the point of us experiencing anything? Like, couldn't we just be zombies? I mean, that's a philosophical <laughs> debate. <laughs> Would, would, would we yeah. would we get, get the same job done if we were if we were zombies and we didn't experience anything at all? Um, I guess it's like it's like who or what is the us or the or the aspect of us that even does the experiencing? I mean, this is all kind of quite deep stuff. Um, the purpose of it. I mean, the, the, you know, scientists have done a lot looking into consciousness. Like, what is yeah? Why? What is the purpose of it? can't remember all the arguments offhand but it, it it's um you know essentially consciousness it, it it gives a sense of binding um and unifying the the mind and the, the brain it, when things become conscious it's they, they kind of have this global ignition of of the whole brain you know there's, there's activity in one part of it and then it it essentially gets to a threshold and then goes boom and it literally spreads out and it, you know the whole thing lights up 
and, and, and the whole and this content becomes accessible to the wider um, brain, to the whole network. So there's definitely a purpose to that in, in terms of binding and uniting and relating all the different processes. So in a sense, it's kind of, it pulls us together, whereas in, without that, there might be lots of dis distinct fragmented aspects of processing going on. So as we know that that kind of consciousness, which would relate to ego, has kind of two aspects. And one of them is that sort of narrative, that sense of identity that actually holds us together. So in a sense, that experience that we're, which we're aware of, which we can relate to and observe and narrate and form a, a kind of schema from is, is basically if one of its purposes is identity. Um, to know that we exist and, and, and what and who we are. Um, the other aspect of it is um, a sense of agency or impl implied agency of feeling that we exist and can act on the world. You know, and there's debates about that, whether whether free will is even even exists as a thing yeah. technically, but at least we get the feeling that we do. I love the, uh, I mean, the identity and connection, of course, the connection which relates to, you said union, uniting everything. So consciousness, so the process in the brain, it's trying to make sense of all the relationships it's experiencing. So making the kind of bringing everything together. So that makes me think about this idea, a spiritual concept of oneness, that everything's connected or non-duality, which is some of the um, studies that I really follow, the spiritual philosophies mm -hmm. that I, I love reading about. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense to me, coming from that scientific point of view. It makes so much sense. In a way, spirituality and science, they connect. I mean, they merge don't they, Richard, in so many aspects? Yeah, I mean, if you think, you know, with spirituality, it's like coming at it from the inside, the inside view of, of phenomenology, of the experience of, of the mind and the, this, you know, being this this system and being within it and observing it. And, and that's, you know, certain aspects of that, I think, are what we call spirituality and you know, science tries to look things from the outside, you know, looking almost what it's called objectively, but whether that's even possible, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, right. So it's just looking from a different view or perspective angle, but it comes to the same conclusion in a way. It seems to me, like from what I have studied and have heard, that there's no really nobody certain about the beginning of this, just what's happening now, and then nobody we don't know what comes after. It's a mystery still. The end, the beginning, and the end, and just this now, this moment seems to be real. And this, um, in a lot of the philosophies I follow, Advaita Vedanta especially, it claims mm. not to this what's happening now, not being real. So there's nothing happening in a way, <laughs> but it seems to be, it feels like it. <laughs> uh, okay, that's, we are getting off the subject, I guess. What is freedom to you? What is to be free? Well, that's a good question, yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people would, would say it's to be able to express themselves. We, we start getting into this sense of like, what what is kind of true self and what's natural and all those kind of things. It's it's to I guess to be free 
is to be able to express whatever arises and for that not to be blocked or shut down by the world or, your, or even by yourself. <laughs> right, right, right. I love that. It sounds very simple, but it's not. <laughs> it's not as simple as it sounds. If you, if you think about it, like, you know, the, the mind, the brain, is, 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 it's always busy. And there's, you know, even when you're not directing attention to something, there's things arising spontaneously, this activity that just pops up. It's the whole this, the brain's a fantastic thing in the, in that in that sense that it can create its own activity even if you're in a dark room completely silent with nothing going on you know activity spontaneously arises in it um and and i guess freedom is kind of related to that you know if that stuff that spontaneously arises for whatever reasons it does in you um is is able to do that and then able to, to find a way to manifest itself in the world, then mm. I guess that you could call that freedom. Let's talk about your work, Richard. You are an organizational psychologist and coach. So the main question about what you do is, how did you become interested in psychology? And how did you, how did you become who you are today to be here now and do what you do? How did this come to be? How was this created, <laughs> per se? Well, in, in a, it's a roundabout way in that, you know, initially when I was younger, I studied my physics and chemistry and um, maths and things at school, went on to do a chemistry degree, but then I actually started to seek my own meaningfulness from life. You know, I sort of ended up training in IT support and things, but it really didn't give me much sense of passion. So... At that point, I just, I just realized I really had a love for music. I guess I always had, but I wanted to take it more seriously as a career. So that launched into like a, almost a 15-year career in music as, as a musician, sound engineer, promoter, all kinds of different things. But somehow along that path, I started to, as I always had as well, be, being interested in myself and what was going on and psychology from the inside perspective you know, why, why am I like this being me and what's going on, all the usual stuff. And, and you know, I found some kind of information and useful things, read stuff, and it just sort of grew from there. But the personality stuff initially coming to that from the sort of typology perspective was quite insightful for me in getting a sense of, of that, of what was going on for me. And it just grew into an interest that took over things and went back to university, did lots more training and all kinds of things and just took that path, had a change of career. So that's that's essentially how it, it, it grew out of, again, a passion for myself and understanding myself and others. Um, and the whole psychological experience and process that we're part of that we are essentially what we are, you know, the, this experience and, and trying to, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the last great mysteries of the human race, isn't it? That's interesting to hear that it comes from that self-interest of like knowing yourself and the mental processes and then you're just externalizing that. 
So in a way, you mentioned briefly about free will, that there's a lot of debates around that. It feels like we are controlling life, but it's almost like a knowing aspect in me that says you're not controlling anything because there's no a core you in here anyway. So mm. there's just life, parts of life kind of dancing and, and doing what they do. So that makes sense to me. So the work, what do you do, kind of found you. It <laughs> just brought yeah. you to this moment, but it's not really, it was never programmed or planned by somebody. So I would love to hear more about the personality parts approach that you teach and work. I know I have a lot of questions here about it, but initially, so talk to me about that, Richard. Yeah, so personality parts is a name that I've given to my perspective on this particular personality model, which is based mainly on the work of Dr. John Beebe, uh, who's a Jungian analyst from San Francisco, um, who I've been very fortunate enough to, to learn from directly and, uh, you know, a great follower of his work. And I mean, he's building on people like the work of Carl Jung and other anal analysts and Jungians who've, who've followed in that tradition. Um, but he basically tries to take the typology, which a lot of us have come to know through the modern day interpretation by like MBTI, that Myers-Briggs, that kind of thing. But he's gone back to the actual Jungian roots of it. And, and, the, and it's actually interesting how different that can be to the interpretation of MBTI. And, and to put it back into a, the context of a broader context of what Jung was doing in terms of his dynamic model of the psyche, of the, the mind system, the conscious and unconscious, and other aspects that kind of didn't, because they're kind of too complex for, for a very simple system that's designed to be rolled out on scale in in the workplace. You know, it's... It, 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 but at the same time, when you do that, it's just, it's just something you lose a lot of the, the depth and, and the understanding of the context. So he's trying to bring it back into that. Um, bring back in the depth to typology. So my model of the personality part is my own further like way of interpreting it and then trying to reintegrate it with more um, mainstream um, psychology whether that's consciousness or co cognitive psychology. Because um, I do believe you know, this stuff, it, it's it's kind of got out from the mainstream because it uses different language, different terminology, comes from a different path. But fundamentally, you know, it, it, for me, it, it, it explains and, and lines up with the experience for people. And it never, it always, it always amazes me how much it can really get people's personal like self-experience the phenomenology of what's going on for them in their mind it's kind of a model built from that perspective and i think you know if it's valid in that sense then we'll find the connections to the external view it's all there it's going to it's all there in the literature it just needs to be reinterpreted and reconnected um, we're just talking about the same things from different perspectives with different names so that's part of my journey is to try and reintegrate this um, this way of looking at the mind and the personality to the mainstream 
<clears throat> when I hear you saying that, I think about this almost like for professionals. <laughs> Most uh, psychologists will be very interested in your work, I'm sure. And from the perspective of a late person like myself and so many people out there, I guess the main question is, which I have some ideas, what is the main purpose of your work? What is the, the core? So, yeah, you're, you're right. Bringing it back to the experience um you know, talking in, 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 in lay terms, you know, rather than to the psychologist, you know, my, the purpose of this is to help people understand the experience of being themselves um, and how that differs in different situations and how, the, in effect, there are different parts of themselves that kind of recognizably different characters that, that crop up. Um, even like internally within their own experience and also within their behavior. So you'll notice this very straightforwardly from relationships, any kind of significant close relationship, whether it be a partner or child or parent. Once we've got past the honeymoon period of a relationship and all of the, you know, we let fields down and, and things start to come out, you, see, you, you will always see these different aspects, these parts of people, and the more you know them, the more longer you spend with them, the more you get to see the patterns. You get to see the same thing arising and you go, oh, that's they're being like that again. That's that part of them. And so in a sense, like distinguished across time, it's a, it's a unique, distinct part with its own characteristic. And it's like the model built on Beebe's work, it, it's to provide a kind of map to that phenomenological world of, of these parts it gives it gives you a sense of the possibility of recognizing them of naming them yeah. um and understanding the nature a bit more i love this work of understanding first of course recognizing observing and then understanding and then the main question right that we all have how do we change when we find parts that we're not really comfortable with so that's the question for you now is it possible to change them or somehow make peace with them? Yes, absolutely. I think that all that integration is obviously, you know, the, the kind of goal, I guess, with a lot of self-work, isn't it? Um, and, and you talked about like duality, non-duality before. You know, I guess the whole Jungian ideal is, is that sense of wholeness, you know, but, but the recognition that along that journey necessarily comes a form of one-sidedness. Uh, one-sidedness implies polarity, implies a form, a sense of duality. And so what we're saying is the whole thing with typology is that we're slightly biased, one-sided, skewed. Naturally, in, in our development, um, and there, but then the second step, like you said, is to reintegrate to come to more to a whole perspective so the the work is really overcoming the tension conflict between these different parts one of the things people forget is that the the concept of attitude that Jung used he meant that we form like you know an attitude as in like a good or a bad attitude towards something um I always like to think of that old program, the A-Team. I don't know if I'm probably quite old in saying that, but you know, 
from the, from the past, from the from the early eighties or something. And there was that character, B A um, Bad Attitude, <laughs> who, who kind of. I don't know. Yeah, it's just well, it might be the TV thing. Is that on TV? Yeah, it's a TV, TV program. Yeah, I don't watch TV. It might be that too. It's not really the age. <laughs> this guy, B A B A, he, he was he was famous. Shut up, fool, fool! Yeah, like okay. call everyone fool. He had a bad attitude towards people. All right. Um, and so that that kind of attitude, like that, we get we naturally, diff- without realizing it, form an attitude towards certain ways of being. Um, and and therefore we kind of negate and and shut ourselves off from certain potentials within ourselves. Um, that's a big part of that whole polarization of one-sidedness, and and then we end up projecting it onto other people as well, and then going, oh, they're they're evil. We hate them. Hate them. They're, they're bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but we're doing that to ourselves. Like if you end any time you hate somebody or something else, you're essentially like externalizing an internal conflict, and therefore, you know, robbing yourself of of something that that you could have. Oh wow, that's a beautiful insight. I mean, a beautiful message <laughs> to just kind of sink in, pause, and because it is so true, you can't really see something out there if it's not here. I cannot have conflicts outside of me if they are not within me. That has been very much established, like understood by whoever this is <laughs> that I call me, that anything that I am not in at peace with, I know it's here. It's my perception. Of course, there are some, uh, let's say, unpleasant people <laughs> out there, and I'm not able to see that a lot. And I wonder if also there's a part of the brain that tries to see the best in everything and be positive about everything, because I know it's one of my habits, if I can call it a habit. Mm-hmm. And now I don't know. It's kind of, there's so much that we don't know, right, Richard? where it comes from, these perspectives and, and perceptions of the world. But it makes yeah. sense to me, the inner world being the, the guide. Yeah, so that, from that perspective, we've got these tensions of things within us where we, we put more value and, and allow some things in more than others yeah. into the mix of, our, of who we are. And I guess naturally sometimes because... It, so in the parts, personality parts model... There's this two sets of eight things, right? And so you've got what you, like the Jung would have called the the functions or function attitudes, which are this basically psychological systems within within the, the overall system, like broad systems. We talked about some of them before: the intuitive and feeling. Um, functions and the introverted and extroverted forms as the, but essentially they're, they're, there's eight you know eight distinct forms of of, of processing within the system. Um, but then you've also got eight different what I call centers of attention um, and action. Um, so they've got that's kind of the the they're kind of the center of um, that that does the doing. Essentially, the, the, the sense that it does the doing, and then the functions are like the tools that it uses. The like um, the way another model I use is like, well, these centers are like the, the, the cores in a processor, like the computer you're using now or your mobile phone. A lot of them now are like octa-core computers. Um, so it's the process. The central processor has eight cores 
that's quite common in a phone now. So you've got eight sort of thing, eight independent little scores that can go off and do its own things in parallel simultaneously or run eight different little programs. Yeah. So it's a nice way of, of using that as an analogy. So those, those cores are like these centers and it's what John Beebe would, would call the archetypes. It's what him and Jung would call complexes. Um, that's, well, they're archetypal complexes. They're, they're, they're centers with, with their own kind of sense of volition of, or of action of able to initiate things that they have a kind of sub identity to themselves. And then, you know, if they're going out and using these eight, um, different system processing systems, you get 64 combinations. So you could have any one of these eight different cores or centers using any of these eight process system tools, whatever you want to call them, the tools you can use to do things in the world. Um, but the, the, the cores, the centers have their own characteristic sort of archetypal natures. Um, and, and they're archetypal because they're sort of characteristics that are recognized throughout time, throughout human nature, throughout um, cultures. And, and, and so they constantly get repeated and, and put into art and and media and, and film and things like that. You know, one of my favorite being the trickster archetype. So what I'm saying is we've got a sign of center or core of, of, of action within us that, that has this nature of tricksteriness that it becomes, that, that has its own almost spontaneous nature that, that can then be connected and use some of these other different, these, these processes. So it's, it's using a particular tool in a certain way. You've got the what, the what you do, the tool, and you've got the way that you do it, the way you relate and come across with it. Um, and the, the, the idea of it is within these sort of 16 typologies that Jung, um, well, in his extended model sort of described, with each, with, each, with each of those comes a sort of configuration by which those eight centers are primarily or of like configured or carry or bound to the, the eight processes. And where typology typically starts off is with what we'd call the, the ego agent, what I call the ego agent, which is actually where we get, I think, that sense of free of will. But what I'm saying that that is, is a, a center that his, it's, his characteristic by its very nature is, is heroic. That's what we call the hero archetype. And it's, it's nature, it's, it's, in, it's way of looking at the world is as, is as cause and effect, as object acting on other objects, which is why it gets the sense that it is, it is controlling the world, that it's something making things happen. Because its perspective on the world is, is inherently one of objects acting on objects. It's just, it's, it's, ma it's, it's model of the world. So it can't see it in any other way. We, we have to feel like we are from that acting from that center that we are an object acting on objects. <laughs> and, and, but the, then that, that is the whole point of typology is that that hero center uh, ego archetype, sorry, ego agent is, is bound primarily to one of the, of the functions. It becomes a dominant function, a dominant process that we get a sense of being much more connected and, and with and being much more accessible to us 
than the other ones, um, it becomes more conscious for us. It, it, you know, and so in a sense, other ones become more neglected and less accessible. So that's where you get that duality from, that, that kind of sense of, of differentiation, because, you know, there's that different uh, association with, con with consciousness um, of the different processes. And the other ones end up sort of in the unconscious um, more, but then more connected to these other centers, which we don't really give any kind of existence in, a, in our modern world. Um, but ancient cultures, I guess, would have, you know, polytheistic cultures kind of tried to depict that, like the ancient Greeks. You know what what they would predict project out there as gods, for instance, or multiple gods with different natures. Essentially, was was creating an externalized map of this internal world without even realizing it. Um, you know these, you know what what you see is what they saw as like external agencies, external gods acting on us and the world, was essentially internal centers of potential attention. And in action within themselves. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's fascinating how this, the parts, as you call it, the model, uh, personality, parts, approach, model, it can just be explored from so many angles because it seems to be almost like endless when I think about <laughs> these chains of mood and, and beliefs and values. That's a question that I have actually for you. You made me think about that in a way. Beliefs and values, are they the same from your perspective? <laughs> It's interesting that one of them is more of a kind of perceptive thing and one's more of a kind of judge, judging thing, more of a, a rational thing. So, you know, belief is like almost like this is how the world is. Um, the value is like this is how it should be. Mm. And, and but each each of the kind of these we get to know these different eight sort of functions or systems or and and how they process the world in different ways and have different perspectives that you, you get to realize that each of them has a different kind of value set or each one believes that the world is is a certain kind of way or that this is the way to model the world In a way, they are limiting, aren't they? that perspective, that view of life, it's limiting. That's what it sounds to me. I have tried to discuss here, and I ask myself all the time, is it possible to navigate this world, this reality, with our belief system, without values, just being open to life and being present mm. to whatever is happening in the moment? Is that really possible? Have you tried, Richard? For a, for a person who's driven by a perceptive process or, or inhabits that a lot of the time, that's quite a natural way to go about things. You know, if you're if you're coming at the world from a, from a one of the functions that that has a perceiving like lens on the world, but is looking for how things are rather than deciding whether they're good or bad or, or whatever, then yeah, it's natural that you are just going to kind of take what's there and, and want to know more about it. <laughs> right. And what would that be, that archetype? What is the name of that? So, function, so functionally, um, we're talking about the functions. Oh, the functions, right, not archetype. So yeah, they're, they're right. different. But I mean, it, the center, like if it's 
more conscious for you and you're driven by it and it's leading you, you know, then essentially it's we're talking about the hero archetype or perhaps the, the good parent archetype, which are which are the ones that are closest to consciousness in in this sort of model. The ones that people tend to identify with, the ones that are typic typically part of the, the, the typology when it's when it's looked at on a on an identity basis that when you're ignoring all the unconscious parts. But so it's a hero aspect potentially or one of you know, the good parent part. And then it's, you know, the, the, fun, the functions we're talking about are, you know, the sensing or intuitive functions and probably in, in, in yours and mine case, more the intuitive functions are the best. Um, you know, so perhaps extroverted intuition, you know, uh, people driven by extroverted intuition often tend to be, be quite like, like polymaths, like always like, you know, endless interests in, 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 in wanting to know how the world is and, you know, constantly expanding into a hundred different side shoots of, of possible exploration. Um, you know, so that sort of way of it, when, when we're driven by that, it's just, um, it's like unraveling the world, like an endless ball of wool. <laughs> That's so interesting that you said that, the good parent, because when I looked at it, that was um, like intuitively, like my whole, the body, mind, whatever, just but the attention in me went straight to the good parent when I was reading those words. So mm-hmm. that might be the one in my case, so the conditioned mind and body that I carry, that might be being guided by that. How fascinating. <laughs> and then you also talked about, the, um, if I recall correctly, the light side and the shadow side. Mm-hmm. The, each function, right, Richard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. Like You can then split these eight sort of centers of action and attention into two sets of four, you know, in this way model. But then you've got the those which are called the light side and the shadow side. And what's the difference between them? I mean, it, it's 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 tempting to just go, oh, one's positive and the other one's bad. Right. That that can rile some people massively. <laughs> some people that clashes with their value systems hugely. So it's not the best way to go about it. I've tried to get a sense that um and even this sounds judgmental to say that like the light side perhaps constructive and, and the other side destructive but within that you've got to accept that there's, there's a sense of um there's a place for both of those things you know and, and a sense that well the modern world's become overly identified with with the light side in the sense that you know growth becomes our metric for everything and we have to build and grow and expand if you don't cut away and 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 break things down at the same time it's not sustainable <laughs> and so you know nature nature understands this that you know plants animals it all has a cycle of light of birth growth decline death you know there's nothing inherently good or bad about um our birth or death but there's something implied within culture that seems to put it one way. 
uh, it, it's incredibly hard to look upon death as a, as a good positive thing. That's the, that's the problem, you know. So, and within that comes the conundrum with the shadow. You know, if you can see the positive side, the benefit in death, then I think you've probably cracked the, the, the mystery. Um, you know, understanding that um, the shadow is just as much an important part, a valid part of nature and our nature. Um, but it's really hard to accept that in, in our current world. Um, you know, they're actually, you know, death, destruction and, and all these these things that people are obviously understandably hor- horrified by have their place in, in a larger cycle system. Um, but when we're in our own shadow, you know, we can exhibit all these kind of destructive tendencies. Um, and it's hard to try and give that value for what it is and accept it. So hence, we don't want to be associated with it. So, you know, it becomes denied, it becomes rejected. Um, but that prevents integration. Ah, right. This kind of contributes to this whole splitting and and Mm. duality and this one-sidedness. Wow. What a beautiful message. Another one. (laughs) Thank you for saying that because it resonates true to my heart and it makes a lot of sense to the mind. As of this moment, it's just that's the truth to me, that there's no really nothing good or bad. But it's just a system. Life is a, it's a system of processes. And uh, yes, yeah, cycles will end. We see that in nature, as you said. So, I mean, that's logic. Without destruction, without end, we cannot have rebirth or renewal. But because we don't understand, because we don't know, and we, we really want to know what's going to happen after death, maybe that's the reason why we judge and we, we're afraid of it because we don't know. And that, what I have been exposed to lately more than anything attracted to is the idea that I don't know. Mm. Like, you know, I love really saying that these days. You know, I don't know. Be just being open and curious in the moment and kind of grateful in a way. There's a, a kind of that sense of gratitude arises at the same time when I open the heart to this moment and there's no judging anymore. There's no knowing, really, but just this surrender to this, whatever this is, this moment, I would say. Mm. So I think we, we hold on to an, a lot of the, um, the idea, let's say, not the concept of the knowing aspect of life. And we want to know something in us. It might be what you call the ego agent that wants to know, it wants to have control of this journey. That's exactly how we get lost. <laughs> it, it, it has been my case mm-hmm. um, in the past. We, we've got, yeah, that sense. I mean, I think there's two aspects, the ego that there's the ego agent, but there's also the ego narrator as well. Mm, yeah. Um, mm. And I think that they're, they're kind of separate. So, you know, the, the narrator is like, I guess what some people would call the observing ego, the sense of like, it's the thing that's watching and telling the story and, explaining what's going on and putting it into words and putting it into meaning. Um, And in a sense that it's a separate thing to the ego agent because you can have that sense of narration, of observing, of 
things happening within yourself, things arising or behaviors like gripping and, and, and expressing themselves without then feeling you've got any power to control it <laughs> or, they, or and without feeling that you intend, intended it, you made it happen. It happened by itself. You've got no way of stopping it, but you've kind of got a sense, a guilty sense of knowing that it's happening and being able to then hopefully then describe it and maybe go into <laughs> therapist about it. Ah, yes. All right. I mean, they didn't know the term, of course. Thank you for, for letting me know in the audience. No, the ego narrator and the ego agent, right? They are separate. That terms that I, I, I've given them because I think it describes, but um, yeah, the narrator, I think that, that's something that's been used by others in terms of a certain aspects of, of the brain that's been researched um that is the right term uh, the more i kind of give ears to the narrator of you know that one that's trying to find the meaning and trying to control some aspects of life and then the other one that's trying to kind of let go of that narration and just become free as i, I tried to describe it before about being mm -hmm. present and just being open Ah, the more I find contradictions and paradoxes. How can I be one thing? It's just like, it's not possible. It seems to me that just being open again to everything, but without grasping, being open and free or being attracted to storytellings or creating stories or creating anything. So it's almost like it's just giving yourself to life <laughs> and just, let it guide you. I mean, if it brought you here, if I'm here now speaking to you and you're speaking to me, I mean, it feels really wonderful to have this conversation. So mm. I trust it's going somewhere mm. that is, I don't know, I can try to describe as good, but it's not even that. It might be a more evolved kind of existence, I would say. It might be leading us to that, or whatever mm. that is. Yeah, and you've got you know you've got that curiosity, that exploration, expansion. I mean, you know, I can't help but you know when you, I hear you talk, you know, thinking about what different all these different systems and processes, and you know which which ones are, are driving you. You know, knowing their nature, like what kind of person are you like being? Are you expressing through you know certain of these processes being? more at the forefront, more spontaneously arising just of their own accord and taking you with them. Um, and it's it's a sense that, you know, the, the whole point of the free will question is like, you know, if you kind of let go of that for a minute, the sense of um, we are an agent acting on the world, then it, even that part itself is spontaneously arising. Mm, right. Yeah. So that's the whole point of it. <laughs> yes. It's, it's wonderful because type, type, like type or one-sidedness or bias towards certain mental processes is not a choice. Don't intentionally do it. It happens of its own accord. So even that which we feel most centrally connected with and accessible to us, it's not something intentional. It itself is just we've been carried along by a system with a certain way of expressing a certain bias in it, you know. 
beautifully said again. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, that's not in the spiritual language. That's what I have heard. And I can't help but quote them, Advaita Vedanta, that there's mm. a non-duality perspective, that there's no one doing anything. No one, per se, that centered that personality, that one called Valeria or Richard. It's just processes and it's just life happening. In the rises, as you say, I love that word. Mm-hmm. Just everything's just appearing and arising. No, no one's doing anything. And that, what I reflect, I contemplate and I reflect a lot of, around this, exactly this idea, is that, so what is this state? Um, how does it make me or this feel then when it's understood, perhaps even beyond understanding, it becomes a realization that there's no one controlling anything. Life is just happening. It's almost like, oh, what a relief (laughs) that there's no one here controlling anything. (laughs) Life is just happening. So it's that sense of trust kind of rises to. That's what it is, strongly. There's this very powerful, like, wow, I trust whatever's happening here and how I came to be this and you came to be you. I trust. I just trust this. It's a lovely feeling, really, of trust in life. And there's there's a part of us. (coughs) <coughs> Sorry, well, there's an aspect that of, yeah, going with the flow and trusting, <coughs> excuse me, so trusting that system, expressing and, you know, you know supporting the process of, of the mind growing and expanding and, 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 you know, understanding it through models, but like supporting it. And I guess that's what this kind of model and like what a lot of Jung's work was about is, is trying to support that what he'd call individuation process or the process of using the conscious mind to try and then unpack and reunite what's going on and, and to understand and accept all these other aspects. Because yeah, although there's nothing nothing per se in there controlling it, you, I said when you look at this model, you get a sense that there are distinct parts or aspects that kind of have their own independence to some degree, their own ways of looking at the world that we can drift in and out and get gripped by and it's trying to understand them um, and give them all an understanding give them all a place in our kind of internal family um, and become whole in that sense yeah and that might be what I call trust might be exactly that it might be because it sounds like now um, you're putting words to it that I, I didn't have before. But yeah, of course, the, the sense of wholeness, right? So it's almost like it's beyond acceptance, really. It is a sense of trust that all these parts, they know what, what they're doing. It's almost like uh, being guided by divine intelligence or life's intelligence and mm-hmm. letting those parts, they seem to be independent, but they are not. They're connected to something much bigger, life itself. So, yeah, there's that sense of wholeness that it seems to me it has been a guiding principle in a way. I know it sounds very intellectual, but it's uh, kind of comes down to this reality in a sense of um, the day-to-day life when I see, let's say, my husband getting impatient about something. And then instead of reacting or responding with the same frequency of judgment, then it's um, there's something else happening there. I see there's a, almost a compassion arises. Like, oh, mm. he must be suffering. <laughs> he must be in pain to be behaving this way. 
Yeah, that's how I can recognize this wholeness, divine intelligence is guiding the parts and not letting them respond or react in a judgmental and opposing way in situations like that, like very simple situations, daily situations. Yeah, and if you look at you know from what, what Jung was saying, you know you've got this this archetypal self, this aspect, this sort of cent- or central organizing principle, or like blueprint or master plan to the you know the overall picture. And you know you, you can call it what you will. There's lots of different names for it, I guess. It's a sense that you know it's just nature's evolved system that we are. Um, you know, to look at it, you know, you can look at it in a in a theist, in a religious or, or or an agnostic way, either way, um, like that sense of that this that you know we're being you know we are part of a an unfolding natural process. Yes, a trillion times to that that trust that I spoke of <laughs> earlier, that I trust mm. that intelligence or the, that process. And what I wonder a lot of times is that why some of us don't. Kind of doesn't seem, you see, it doesn't seem, that's the, the operative word, like that's the key word, doesn't seem to be growing, some of us. And then I can't help sometimes, but not judge, but kind of discern between those, some people, human beings who are committed to growth and to kind of uh, nurture those parts and those processes. And some of us, some other human beings who seem to be completely oblivious to those processes. I wonder why this happened. It, it is a nat- another natural process, right, Richard? Mm. It has to be. It's a whole journey. It's a whole yeah. journey. I mean, the, yeah, the, the idea of the, the the completely, perfectly developed, individuated human being is like a kind of unreal ideal. I don't know any real people in life that ever get that. You know, we're all imperfect and we get, you know, we can, like, actually, we, we project, we do project it out there in, in, many spiritual systems and, and like you know it, it becomes idealized you know um but we you know we're all there's a thousand challenges and 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 hurdles to jump over along the way just try and get part of the way it's it's just, it's something that it will will hopefully be good for our well-being and 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 for our being us like, achieving what we need want to in life so before we end the conversation today, I mean, I'm having such a great time that I'll be here. I, mean, I could be here for ages because <laughs> yeah. I, I love this. But before we end the conversation today, I do want to ask you a question about, I saw this on your website, Personality Parts Discovery Weekend. This is a course. Is that a course that you offer or a workshop? It might be both, right, Richard? Yeah, so it was like a workshop weekend to get into this model and trying to understand it and recognize um, how how it plays out in real life because it can seem quite abstract and like a theoretical but you know the, the reality of it is catching yourself in the moment in real life reacting to things being gripped by things and going into these these patterns these recognizable parts of yourself and you know, in a sense, the week a weekend's not even long enough. You know, essentially, you need to kind of start working on this sort of stuff over time and observing, um, looking out for when these things erupt. <laughs> you know, and 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 come up in our in our in our in our psychology in our behaviour. But yeah, the weekends is start was starting point. Um, I am intending to run more uh, on do them online. They're always in person. 
and then the pandemic came along and um you know we had another baby in in in, uh, in my family yeah yeah congratulations <laughs> yeah, oh my god oh, it was all very difficult to keep running courses so I do intend to start doing some more um it'll probably be split over a, a number of sessions over time when I do that rather than a, a whole weekend you can't sit on zoom for a whole weekend but yeah the intention will be to to, to launch some more courses um in the near future when I get some time to myself again as uh, from my family and pet and children um, I'm at the very intense stage still, you know, we've got like yeah. a one-year-old. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. That's a fascinating kind of role to play, I can imagine, for you, uh, knowing what you know about personalities and how it's developed. <laughs> yeah, but, but I do I do, do um, individual one-to-one coaching, you know, take people through this model and, and, and also using it in relationships. It's kind of one of the key aspects for me is is using it to understand because these things come up with there's nothing that triggers the parts of us more than than a close relationship so it's within that it's like a learning vessel for for seeing all this stuff so you know worth work with individuals or couples and you know using this model to help bring some awareness to what's coming up to be able to understand and name these parts to take things a bit less personally, because when we realize we're being overtaken by them and gripped by them, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not that we mean to do harm to people <laughs> and then to upset them, but, you know, especially when we're in, our, in parts of the shadow that we end up doing that. Um, so it's a way of taking things a bit less personally, but then you can take responsibility for it, which is a different thing. And, in terms of being aware and having the choice, um, but also trying to integrate and accept the good intention of all these aspects and parts, even if they are shadowy, some of them, they, 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 they mean well, they're just not doing it in, in a nice way a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, so it's almost like guiding them, yeah, or integrating. I love the word integration. Yeah, yeah, but they're not going to let go. They're not going to let go until at least the principle or the message is is, is validated and understood that they're trying to get across. And, and you know, then we can intentionally <laughs> try to achieve the same ends with in, in a way that's you know, less destructive. Yeah, I interviewed a um, physicist. You probably know him. Um, for Jove Capra. He has a system called, the, I think it's the life system, life view system. So it's all about, we see in nature, it's all about thriving or let's say surviving, growing. So we're thriving per se, let's use that word. I don't remember what word he used, but then we can translate when we think about the human life, about happiness. That's what I think about, joy, happiness. So you just reminded me of him now. So by integrating the shadow, then we can create this environment that's more fertile for happiness and for inner peace, for joy. Mm -hmm. So it might become a more pleasant experience to have in a human body. Yes. And of course, he wrote the, the Tao of Physics, right? That's, and so, yes, I mean, Jung himself drew the parallels between sort of like typology, this dynamic of conscious and unconscious and Taoism 
from yin and yang, um, you know, in a sense, the shadow, light and shadow, it's the same thing. You know, we've got that kind of, that yang, and then the yin of what, I guess, what's be, the shadow has become put into that kind of category. But yeah, they're, they're just different sides of the coin. Thank you so much, Richard, for your presence here today, for our conversation. It just has been very enlightening. I have to use this word too. It just came to me. Thank you so much for being open to this experience called life and for doing what you do. It seems like all the parts in you, it's um, uniting themselves to guide us somewhere, which I call evolution or expansion, perhaps. Thank you. Thank you, Valeria, for inviting me along. It's been a pleasure and really interesting conversation. Thank you again. And before we say goodbye for today, where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, courses and future projects, Richard? So I do have um, the website, um, personalityparts.com. Um, there's a form on the contact form on there if anyone wants to reach out, you know, and um, interact, ask any questions about it. It's an ongoing development and, and journey. You know, I, I aim to go and do a PhD developing this in the future. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, you know, people want to learn about more about it. Come and ask me and um, you might see me at um, certain conferences or typology organizations like the BAPT in the, in the UK here and OSAPT in Australia, APTI in, Aus, in the US. So they do conferences around sort of psychological type Um uh, so I often talk at those as well. And so that's another place you can can hear me. Uh, there's things on YouTube. Obviously, it's how you found me um, videos, me going on to explain more about this. I know some people listening to this today, you know, might still be <laughs> confused about the, the, the kind of the theory and the ideas that I'm talking about. But you know, some of the videos will help to explain that more in in the sense that it's got images and things. Yes. And it really does. So I'll have your website on the podcast profile and also the YouTube link. I'll have both there. Thank you so much again, Richard, for your presence. And we'll talk soon. Bye for now. Thank you, Valeria. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Richard Owen and his work, please visit personalityparts.com To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org/podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.